verses 5 through 10. But let me remind you that verses 5 through 10 are not set in isolation. They, they do not exist in a vacuum, but rather they are intimately connected with the preceding verses. But there is just so much wealth in these 10 verses. We, we broke the passage up into, to deal with it in two weeks. And we're talking about Jesus' instruction on how disciples, how followers of, of his are to live out their lives. So let me just um, update you and remind you a little bit about where we've been and then give you a little bit of idea where we're going to go and then, God willing, we will get to where we're going. So the first thing we should remind ourselves are in the, the broader context of this passage of text is we often refer to this as Jesus' travel narrative. That is, he is traveling down to Jerusalem because he has... The, he has, uh, John puts it this way, set his face towards Jerusalem. That is, he is going to Jerusalem. He has set his face towards the cross. The cross is why he has come. He has come into this world to um, die for the sins of mankind, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, but also, one of the things that Jesus is doing is training um, disciples, followers, who will pick up the ministry after Jesus' death and resurrection. They will pick up the ministry of Jesus and carry it on um, and perpetuate it. So um, he is teaching them and training them. So in this travel narrative, one of the things that Jesus is doing, he's doing a lot of things. He's, he's rebuking Pharisees and he's healing the sick and he's raising the dead, but he's also teaching his disciples. And I think all of those things are ultimately for the teaching of his disciples, whether he's healing the sick, he's teaching his, his disciples how to minister in such a way, he's rebuking false teachers. I think that's part of uh, the disciples' training. But he's also specifically speaking to the disciples on how they are to live out their life. And so what he said, or what we studied last week, was, um, was this encouragement, or perhaps even this command that we are to live and speak in such a way that would not cause another brother or sister to stumble, so that our lives are to exemplify Christ in such a way that the way I, that my actions and my words would not be the source of another person defecting from Jesus Christ and going astray. My words and my deeds are such that I do not cause another person to defect. How you doing on that? You don't need to answer. That's kind of a rhetorical question. But, but that's the standard that Jesus is, is putting out there. This is what I want you to do. Temptations are sure to come. Just don't let them come through you. Peter puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 12 of, of his epistle. He says this, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, they may speak evil of you, just don't give them the ammunition. They may lie and speak evil of you, just don't be the one who is providing them the ammunition or make their statements true. Make sure that if they speak evil against you, it's a lie. They have to lie, to, just like Jesus, right? They had to lie to come up with accusations for him. They had to bring in and pay false witnesses to speak against him. So your conduct is such um, that it should be, um, would not cause another brother 
to stumble. The second thing that Jesus, um, or the example that Jesus gave, not only would your, your life and your words be such that they would not cause a brother or a sister to defect, would be that you would be forgiving to one another. And it goes like this. Even if your brother repents seven times in a day, you will forgive him. In other words, do not allow your unforgiveness to be a cause of stumbling. I think that what Jesus does here is he says, don't let your life, your, your deeds or your words be a source of stumbling to another. And then he gives us an example. And the example is, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he confesses his sins, forgive him, even to the degree that if he does this seven times in a day, you will continually forgive him. So we, he's encouraging or teaching his disciples to endure great harm from another and be a serial forgiver. So here's what Jesus just said. Let's, let's wrap this up. Let's not wrap up this review. Believe me, I'm not wrapping up my sermon. Let me wrap up this review, this purely review. So, <laughs> so Jesus is saying, you are my disciples. I want you to live and speak in a way that would never cause another brother to stumble. And even at great harm to yourself, even when you have endured great harm and hurt, you would be a forgiving person. Do you understand why verse 5 is there? Lord, give us faith. That makes perfect sense to me. Lord, you've just called me to do something that is like way beyond my ability. It is certainly way beyond my comfort. It is certainly beyond what anybody would ever expect of me to do. Lord, if you want me to do that, I need faith. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. We, we, we brought in verse 5, which is, Lord, increase our faith. But I'm going to kind of unpack that statement a little bit more today as we move forward. So today, just by way of preview, we want to talk about the idea of faith and humble obedience. So Jesus is going to teach us something about faith today. And he's going to also teach us a bit about humble obedience and all of this as, um, as the life of a disciple. And so... Are you with me so far? Because we just started. Here we go. Um, let's read our text together. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage, uh, verses 1 through 10, even though our comment today will only be on verses 5 through 10. But it is, I believe, a unit. So let's, uh, let's keep it all together. So listen to God's inerrant word. And he said to his disciples, Temptations, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? 
Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And this ends the reading of God's word. So, Jesus begins this comment, or the, the disciples say, give us faith, and Jesus now begins to, to teach them a little bit about faith. Let me just give you some basic preliminary issues before we go on. Understand this, faith is a really big topic in the Bible. It is a broad topic. Um, it is uh, one that if we were to do an exhaustive series uh, on uh, the topic of faith, it would be just that. It would be a series, and it would take us multiple weeks and or months, perhaps years. However, what we're going to be looking at today is just a sliver of our understanding of Jesus' teaching on faith. So please do not think that this is some exhaustive uh, teaching on faith. It is a sliver of that entire teaching that Jesus or the Bible gives us. So the, the entire biblical word on faith is broad and large, and there's many things that, that I am not going to say today, many things that could be included about faith that, that won't be included today because Jesus today is just giving us a sliver or a slice of uh, one of the many truths about faith. And so, listen to what um, is said. The apostles say to the, or the apostles, which is interesting that, that that Luke calls them here apostles, but I'm not going to go there. I just think it's interesting. But he says that they say to the Lord, increase our faith. There's a couple things here with this petition. So they petition the Lord, Lord, give us faith. There are some things that we should commend the, the apostles or the disciples about this, um, about this appeal to Jesus for more faith. A couple things that are commendable. And the first thing that is commendable about their request for more faith is that they go to Jesus, the one who can provide that which they are requesting. That is, it is an appeal to Christ to supply to them what they believe they lack. They're saying, we lack something. You've given us this great command. You've given us this really uh, high standard to reach. And if we are to do that, which we do want to do, Lord, give us the faith to do that. So it is commendable that they go to Jesus and not go to some other source or think that the supply would be provided in some other source. They recognize that if we're going to have faith, Jesus is the source for that um, increase of faith. Jesus is the source. So we would definitely commend them for that act, and I would also um, commend you if, if you... When you are in lack of something, Jesus is our source. But the other thing that I think is interesting and that should be commended by them is their recognition for um, the need for ongoing faith. In other words, when they say, Lord, increase our faith, there is a recognition that we already have faith. We just don't have enough. They think they don't have enough. I'm going to get to that. Their, their understanding is, Lord, we have faith. We just don't have sufficient faith to do the thing that you've asked us to do. So increase our faith. And so there is a recognition of the ongoing need for faith. So faith is already resident within them. What they are requesting is more faith to meet the high demands of verses 1 through 4. So 
let us realize that faith is the life of the disciple, that we come into our faith with faith. We, we come into the Christian life. We enter into the Christian life through faith. I believe that God gives us faith, and that is uh, faith to believe, and we believe, and by through that we enter into the Christian life. In fact, what is the very first message um, that Jesus preached uh, and John the Baptist preached and, and Peter preached. Repent and believe. Believe. That's the idea that comes from the word group of faith. Repent and believe. Belief is necessary for one to enter into the kingdom. That's not what we're... We're not talking about initial faith. Faith that brings one into the kingdom. We are talking about faith that sustains us and enables us to continue living out the life that God has called us to live. So we enter into the life of Christ by faith and we continue on this life that Christ has given us by faith. In fact, the life of the believer is a life of belief. It is believing and it is, it is believing God's promises. So we enter in by faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He lived, that He died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He is coming again. We believe that. We say that Jesus, I believe that Jesus lived for my righteousness, died for my sins, and that he will take my sins and impart to me his righteousness, and I will be called the righteousness of God. I'm believing that the, the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to accomplish that, that his work is a, sufficient to raise me, a dead man, a person dead by reason of my trespasses and sins, who can speak life and raise this dead person to life. I believe that he is sufficient and capable of doing that. He gives us the ability to enter into the Christian life. But our faith does not end there. Our faith then continues on. We continue to trust and rely and cling to Christ our Lord as we walk this walk. And I hope you all realize that we need faith to live out the life that he has given us. We walk by faith and not by sight. This does not mean we take this giant leap of faith. Well, I'm going to get there. No, our faith is in that which is stable, firm, secure, trustworthy. We just believe that God is stable, firm, trustworthy, permanent. And so we have a, a ground for our faith. So they're asking, Lord, give us more faith. Their faith is already resident. They're just, they just want more. So faith is not some moment. Faith is a journey. So, just a quick summary. This is a a request, Lord, increase our faith. We could just go ahead and call this a prayer. They are praying, Lord, increase our faith. They are praying that for an essential component, they are praying for a God-glorifying essential component to successful living. And they are making that request to Jesus. And, and I put it that way purposely. I put it this way, that they are asking for a God-glorifying essential component to successful living, making that request to Jesus, because it, what they're saying is they're making a prayer to Jesus, and really they're praying for faith. Who would deny such a prayer? You would think if God is going to... Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, we might even say according to his will, 
We might even add in with James uh, that you're not asking with selfish motives. They're not asking with selfish motives. They're saying, no, we really want to do the thing that you called us to do. It's just too hard. We need more. So you would think that Jesus' response would be, oh, you need more faith? Fine, I'm going to give you more faith. That's why we're so surprised, or at least I'm so surprised, I think you will be also, when we begin to recognize, how does Jesus respond? Because my opinion is he should answer, okay, I'll give you more faith. But that's not how he answers. They've made a God-glorifying, unselfish request for something, and Jesus teaches them. He doesn't say no. He doesn't say yes. He just teaches them something about faith. And I think that what he teaches about faith is important to us, for us, as followers of Jesus, as disciples. So listen to his surprising result, um, his surprising um, response. If you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, a very small, small amount of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So let me just make sure we're clear on this. I, I, I think we're probably all on the same page, but let's just make sure we are. Jesus is not teaching us how to uproot mulberry trees. All right, are you with me on that? The purpose of this teaching is not to teach you how to uproot a mulberry tree and plant it into the sea. And I read, you know, commentaries and sermons detailing mulberry trees have all these deep roots and it's maybe one of the more difficult trees. To uproot. I don't know. All I know is what Jesus is saying is impossible. He's using this exaggeration. Even a small amount of faith will enable you to do that which is utterly and humanly impossible. So they say, increase our faith. And he says, listen, even if you have a tiny amount of faith, you'll be able to do the impossible. The existence of faith, even in small amounts, is sufficient to do the impossible. And notice, what does Jesus just ask them to do? He's asked them to do the impossible. I want you to not, that in your life and in your words and in your deeds, not um, uh, be the cause or not give cause to another person's defection. And I want you, even though you are harmed greatly by your brother or sister, to continue to live a life of forgiveness towards them. So here what we have is Jesus teaching that what is important here is the presence of faith, not the quantity of faith. In other words, you already have faith. Now exercise what you have. If you have faith to believe that Jesus is Messiah, you certainly have enough faith. Faith is present. And therefore you have existing within you already is the the necessary faith to do the thing that God has called you to do. So it's the presence of faith, not the quantity of faith. And certainly as believers, as Christians, we should be the most apt to understand what Jesus is saying. Again, they are not being asked to uproot trees. They are actually being asked to do something much easier, to forgive an errant brother. Why, is, why would I say that it is easier to forgive an errant brother than it is to uproot a mulberry tree and cast it into the sea? And the reason I'm stating that it's easier to forgive a, 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 a repentant brother is because as Christians, we are forgiven people. 
of all people in the world, we understand forgiveness. If you are a follower of Christ, you understand forgiveness. As forgiven people, believers should be able to follow since we are forgiven people. Christ says that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And how many of you have experienced the grace of God's forgiveness? If you have, you understand what it means to be a forgiving person. If you have not experienced the grace of God's forgiveness um, after this service, I would love to talk with you about what it would mean to uh, enter into uh, that relationship with Christ where you experience His forgiveness and you live a life um, that is pleasing to God as one who is forgiven. And I'd love to sit around and talk with you about that and, and how we might help you in that walk of faith. So, Jesus is really saying, apply what you have and watch it work. So, how much faith is necessary to forgive? How much faith do you need to forgive? Well, as much faith as it takes to believe that God has forgiven you. Do you believe that God has forgiven you? If you say yes, then you have sufficient faith to be a forgiving person. Even if the request is seven times a day, and I think there might be a little bit of hyperbola there, but certainly it is persistent request for forgiveness of sins. You're going, well, it gets really hard after a while. How many times have you gone to the Lord over and over again with the exact same thing and said, Lord, here I am again with the exact same thing, doing the exact same, I'm in the exact same mess that I was yesterday. Will you have mercy upon me? And you cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our, of our sins. He does not say, and I will do that up to a certain, you will uh, you know, lose your benefits after you, know, you exhaust me. So you have been the beneficiary of this same benefit. And you believe that Christ's blood is sufficient. So therefore, having experienced that and believing that, you certainly have enough faith to live in the same way. So, Lord, give us more faith. And Jesus is saying, um, the presence of faith is already sufficient. Now, exercise what you have. Live out what you have. You already have the sufficient amount of faith. And, and I think it's important that we understand that let me restate that. Perhaps we should give attention to why I guess Jesus could have given them more faith. Why doesn't he just give them more faith? Probably a lot of reasons for that, but my I think the primary reason is that God would be glorified. In other words, to God be the glory. A great quantity of faith is not the issue. A great God is. More faith will tend to exalt men. 
So we might talk of somebody who has great faith. That person has great faith. That person is able to, he's got mountain moving faith. He's got mulberry replanting faith. He's got incredible faith. God is honored when He takes somebody as miserably weak as myself or somebody else and does things amazing, does, does the impossible. When I can forgive somebody who has harmed me and hurt me deeply and my flesh is crying out for vengeance and retribution and I'm going to... I. I don't get mad, I get even. God, somehow, somewhere, all of a sudden I have no animosity towards my neighbor, my brother, my sister. Where in the world did that come from? Because it did not come from this wretched individual. It came from a great God. So God is glorified. God is honored. Now, I know people, we, we know people who've had incredible faith. We've encountered people in this church. You've encountered people in your lives who, who just have this ability to believe. They just believe God. They happen to believe God for really big things. And God does really big things. I've, I've probably often um, told the, the story of a, uh, one individual in our church who who was known for just believing God. But I remember it is... Um, sorry, I repeat myself. I'm getting old, so I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to repeat myself. But, um, <clears throat> but I remember at his, at his funeral and some of the stories that, that, that were told, and afterwards a lady comes up to me and she says, so how come God doesn't do those great amazing things in my life? You've never put yourself in the position that this man put himself. He put himself in a place where God had to do amazing things. Folks, we read God's Word and we come to God's Word and, and we are we live our lives. Lord, can you, through somebody like me, create in me an example so that I would not be a cause of stumbling to my brother or sister? That my words today, that my life today would not be a cause for defection. That somebody would not say, this is why I don't believe in the Christian faith because there's too many hypocrites. They would not say that about me today. Can you, God, because I'll tell you right now, in me, that ain't going to happen. But I got a big God. A God who, even with my little bitty minuscule mustard seed faith, can do great and wondrous things. And so Jesus does not give them great faith, but what he gives them is a great God. That is, God makes much of himself through our inadequacies. That's just so awesome. God makes much of himself through our inadequacies. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, it's a little section on spiritual gifts. And in it, Paul tells us that God has given each person a measure of faith. I guess some get a little bit bigger measure than others. But to each a measure is given to use um, the spiritual gift as God has intended. 
And then it goes on and it says, now don't think too highly of yourselves. In other words, the faith, the measure of faith that you have is a gift of God. Now use it in faithful service. What has God given you? Now use it in faithful service. Do what God has called you to do. You're going, but I'm not up to the task. I'm not asking you if you're up to the task. I'm asking you, did God call you and enable you, or did God um, call you and, and gift you with this particular ability or this particular gifting? Now go and use it. Go and do it. Serve your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love God. Show hospitality to somebody. God has given you a measure of faith. Now use it, even if it's small. Because even a small amount can take a, take a mulberry tree, pick it up, and throw it and, and replant it in the sea. And what God is asking you to do is nothing that difficult. And so the faith you have is the gift of God. Now use it in faithful service. Focus on God who is faithful. And so what is the means by which um, we use our faith or incorporate our faith? And I just, there are probably a lot, but I, do, I just want to kind of emphasize the issue of corporate public worship. I think corporate public worship is a means of increasing our faith because we come together and we sing songs about our faith and we pray prayers about our faith and then we hear hopefully sermons about that encourage and strengthen us and we're gathered together with one another, brothers and sisters in the Lord and the Bible and, and Scripture tells us, let us um, consider how we might spur one another on to love and good works. Let's, as we gather together, let's spur one another on to love and good works and we might even have potluck um, fellowship meals after church where we get together and we encourage and strengthen and build up the faith of, of others. How many of you have maybe just even sat down and had coffee with somebody and, and, and just, I don't know, you, some God talk is going on and you walk away from there just strengthened and built up and encouraged. It's like, this is how God built up his people, by putting us together. And it can be in corporate public worship and it could be sitting at the coffee shop during the week or just hanging out on the phone. And, uh, and talking about more than the weather or more, more than sports or March Madness or anything like that. Those are great conversations. We should have those conversations. But in those conversations, let's encourage and strengthen and build one another up. Let's be that, um, that means of grace, that means of, um, of uh, encouraging and strengthening one another to use the faith that they have to do the things that God has called them to do. Because we all get worn down. So, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And then he tells them, eh, yeah, you don't need more faith. What you need to do is just use the faith you already have because you've got a big God. And then he goes and he tells this parable about unworthy servants. And... Um, and it's pretty straightforward, and I'm, there, there's, a, there's a lot of um, rabbit trails we could take, and I'm going to try not to take them um, to the best of my ability, but I just want to make one or, not one or two, but four or five um, points about this particular parable. So basically it's this. If you have a servant who's worked in the field all day. When he's done working in the field, you don't say, now sit down and let's have dinner together. Rather, you say, 
fix dinner and then after fix dinner for for me and then afterwards you can have dinner yourself and the servant then doesn't boast like and look how great i am in other words faithful service is not a reason for self exaltation i think that's our first principle here in other words and, and that's important because pharisees believed that god favored them due to their obedience but look how righteous I am. I, I fast twice a week. I do all of these things. And so therefore, God must favor me. Because look how obedient and faithful I am. We should note that obedience, faithfulness to God, is not a cause for merit. We are servants of the living God. I hate to tell you this, but servants serve. The terms of service are not open for negotiation. You do not negotiate with God. Well, I'll tell you what, God. And a lot of people do. If you do this for me, God, I promise I'll go to church all the time. Obedience is not leverage. Well, Lord, I obeyed you ten times last week. So certainly you can give me that raise that I need. <clears throat> Faithful service to God is not quid pro quo. In other words, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Listen, I'll tell you what, God, let's enter into an agreement. <clears throat> I'll do this for you and you do this for me. These are the things I want. I want to be respected amongst my peers. I want to be all these things. So I'll tell you what, Lord. I'll, I'll serve in that. I'll serve in children's ministry at the church. By the way, we're looking for children's ministers in the church. But I'll do that, Lord, but um, in return, this is what I expect for you, from you. These are not open for negotiation. If God is calling you to do something, we do something. If God is calling you to serve, we serve. And there is no praise in simply doing the thing that God has called us to do. Faithful service should not become a source of pride. In other words, I am so spiritual, I forgave my sister seven times. What do you think about that, God? Yeah, yeah, you're expected to do that. That's no big deal. That's what you were expected to do. It's kind of like, I don't know, somebody uh, tries to boast to their employer. You know, last week, three days in a row, I showed up on time. Three days in a row, I showed up on time. What do you think about that? To which she replies, yeah, that's your job. That's what you do. There is no praise in showing up on time. You are expected to show up on time. She may end up saying, well, that means two days you weren't on time. We need to talk about that. So, we are servants of the Most High God. And there... Faithful service should not become a source of pride. Look at what I've done. I fast all these times. I pray. I go to church every time the doors are open. I serve on all of these committees. I do all of these things. I feed the hungry. I, I clothe the naked. I look, at, look at what I'm doing. 
Yeah, that's what you're called to do. You've only done what you were supposed to do. And by the way, you did it with the faith God had supplied you. What do you have that, you did, uh, that was not given to you? So if you did all of those things, fasted and prayed and served on this committee and fed the poor and clothed the naked, if you did so, you did it with the faith that God provided and perhaps even with the resources that God provided. So what is your source of boasting? No, you're only doing what you've been called to do. So service should cause the disciples, both the ones that Jesus is speaking to and also by extension, you and I, to grow in our humility. We need to remember not only who we are, servants of God, but we need to remember who God is. is the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of all things. He is the Lord of you and me. And we serve him. And the only reason we are servants of his is because of his grace. Otherwise, we are his enemies. Let me tell you, you'd rather be the servant of God than to be the enemy of God. And I forgot who it was, but somebody was, uh, somebody was asked one time, how do I know when I have a servant's attitude? The reply was this. How do you act when you are treated like a servant? And so, we begin this, this series, this, this section of verses 1 through 10, with this very high calling. Do not let your word or deeds be a source of defection amongst another. Here's an example. Even if you need to forgive somebody, Multiple times in the same day, I am calling you to do that. Do not let your unforgiveness be a cause of stumbling for another person, to which the disciples reply, Lord, I need more faith if I'm going to do that. Jesus says you've already got enough faith to do that. Um, exercise what you have. And when you are done exercising your faith in that, you do not need to boast and think that somehow you've done something that is... Um, some grandiose thing you've done, which you were called to do. And so live as uh, humble, meek servants who are doing the things that God has called them to do. So I'll close with this. Kingdom ethics push kingdom citizens beyond their ability. Let me repeat that. Kingdom ethics push kingdom citizens beyond their ability. So do not be a source of stumbling and be forgiving even when you have been hurt deeply. That's the kingdom ethic. And it pushes us beyond our ability. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to tip over a sacred cow. But I hear so often, and I probably even stated... And I know the verse where it comes from. I just think we don't get it right. I think we misunderstand it, that God will never give us more than we can handle. I don't think that's true. Otherwise, if God can only give you what you can handle, then you can handle it. What glory in God, for, in God is that? No, I think regularly God will give you more than you can handle so that you have no other source of hope or ground to stand on than God's promises and God himself. I got nothing, Lord, because this is way beyond what I can 
ever handle. If I'm going to get through this, if I'm going to maintain through this, if I'm going to do this, it is going to be on you and you alone. Why? Because kingdom ethics push kingdom citizens beyond their ability to the place where we have nothing to rely on but God himself. Oh, and by the way, that's sufficient. See, if God only gives you what you can handle, then you don't need God, do you? You can handle it. So don't be surprised if God gives you something more that you can handle. Realize that God is greater than whatever he has given you. So then we realize the greatness of God, not the greatness of anything else that we have. This is the path of the disciple. The path of the disciple is humble service before a great God who will enable us to do the things that we in ourselves are unable to do. We do the impossible. Why? Because God is the one who is able to do much more than we can ever think or imagine. Let's stand and let's pray.